Good morning. Greetings again to those that are watching us online and a special thank you to those who uh, who are here this morning. If y'all will, for just a brief moment, I'm going to shift this fan so that my Bible pages don't go all over the place and I don't lose my mark, my mark. But man, that fan is handy. Why have I not turned that on before, James? <laughs> I wouldn't have been sweating so bad by the end of my sermons. <laughs> Oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah, I didn't get that memo. Um, every night when my family eats, or actually I should say five out of seven nights when we eat, we have a supper table. Friday nights uh, are pizza night in the Cook household. And so generally speaking, you will find us uh, in our living room watching our favorite episode of Forged in Fire or a movie on the Disney Plus channel or uh, something else. And on Saturday nights, we have burger night. And I think I figured out that I've cooked somewhere uh, between five and 6,000 burgers over the course of the last close to 14 years of, of marriage uh, between Kate's family and, and, and our, our family and our extended family. And our supper table is always uh, lively. As you can imagine, with four children, uh, conversations uh, get interesting. We, we have... Uh, some weekly traditions, we have something that we call Happies, Crappies, and Wows, which is the best part of your day, the worst part of your day, and the most interesting part of your day. And then when we run out of talking about those things, we do something called Make Up a Story. And we start with one person, and we generally give them about 30 seconds to start telling a story, to make something up. And then at the end of 30 seconds, somebody else starts. And we'll, get, we'll go from uh, the once was a princess that lived in a castle to and then this astronaut in outer space launched a bottle rocket and blew up the moon. All within the same story. Supper time is fun in our family. And everybody is welcome at our table. And I am a firm believer in sitting down and eating supper. I think that as families that the supper table is a place of discipleship. We've had very deep conversations at our supper table, even when I didn't intend for them to be that way. But I can be picky sometimes about who sits at my table. And in Middle Eastern times, they didn't sit in a chair at a table. They kind of leaned. Uh, if you look at uh, the, the account of the Lord's Supper and you look at kind of the history behind that, they didn't really have chairs to sit in back then they they would either sit down at a table that was about a foot and a half off of the ground or they'd sit crisscross applesauce like the kindergartners would say and they'd sit down and eat that way and today we're going to look at a passage of scripture that involves sitting at a table and it's just one verse but it's going to be out of a familiar passage of scripture that just about everybody probably has memorized at one point or another i know when i was wrestling in high school before every single meeting we would recite Psalm 23. Even the guys that weren't saved, which included myself at the time, recited Psalm 23. We would blow right through it, but we knew it from heart. And we're going to look at one verse today, and we're going to look at it uh, in the context of, of somebody being served by a particular individual. And so um, this morning, if you are physically able to stand, even though we are few in number, if you would, just in honor of our of our Lord's Word. If you would stand with me and read along with me. Don't let me read just this this morning. If you, if you would, read along with me. We're going to read the entire Psalm 23 
Uh, it should hopefully be on the screen. It'll be 1 through 6. Psalm 23 reads as follows. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray and continue in this. Lord, I just simply ask, as we have asked already, that you would bless this worship service, that it would honor and glorify your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, Lord. Amen. As, as you already know, this passage was written by King David. And as you may already know, King David was a shepherd boy long before he was the king. He was actually the youngest of all of his brothers. And as we'll talk about a little bit later on in the message, he was given the responsibility of shepherding his family's sheep. So he was a shepherd. Um, but he was also the king. He was king of Israel. And unfortunately, as king of Israel, he had to deal with rebellion. And in doing some research and preparing for this message, one of the things I discovered was this, uh, this particular psalm was in all likelihood written during a time when one of his sons, named Absalom, was rebelling against him. His son was trying to take over the throne. A lot of really crazy things happened in David's family, which we won't get into today. But his son basically was trying to overthrow King David. And at that point, his son was unfortunately, even though biologically his son was loved by David, he was very much David's enemy. And so David is writing this in, in a time of turbulence. And I think as he's writing this psalm, we're going to see particularly in verse 5 today, that it's very important to be aware of who is sitting at our table. And as you may have already seen in the bulletin this morning, the title of the message is, Who's at Your Table? Because I don't know about you guys, but there are some people that I don't want sitting at my supper table. There are some people that I don't want to sit down with me and my family because I know their reputation. I know what they can do. I know the words that they can say that will bring harm to me and my family. So this morning, we're going to look at just verse 5. And right about now, you might be thinking you're going to do an entire sermon on just verse 5. Mr. John, I've heard entire sermons on the entire psalm. Are you sure about that? Yes, I am. And we're going to actually see four things in this message this morning. And it's driven by the four kind of phrases that are in this passage. We're going to four, see four things, four reasons why Jesus alone and nobody else should sit at your table. The first thing we're going to see is it says, You prepare a table before me. You, God, prepare a table before me. Now, if you want to know who that you is, we know it's God, but 
specifically who about God, what about God. God is so much more than just God. He's so much more than just the ruler of the universe. Well, what, what part of God is preparing this table before me? Well, for that, go back to verse 1. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. So the one preparing the table before us is our shepherd. The one preparing the table before us is the one who does not want. Now notice it says needs and wants, right? Uh, and then it says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. That tells us that not only is He preparing something for us, but He's providing for us. Something that I learned this week about sheep that I thought was rather fascinating. And we, we kind of already know this from uh, some of the New Testament passages where we're referred to as sheep um, and, and how they can go astray. But sheep are really interesting critters, guys. There's, there's very good reasons, <laughs> there are very good reasons, why we're referred to as sheep. And it has nothing to do with our intelligence level. Sheep, unlike other animals, are naturally lost. They naturally go astray. They naturally don't know what to do. If you get a herd of sheep together, even two sheep, and you put them together, they're naturally going to wander off. They're naturally just kind of going to do what they do. They don't really know where to go. They don't have any leadership. And that's why the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It's such a big deal because here it's telling us, hey, God is going to take you in a specific path and He's going to make you not want. He's going to take care of everything. It says, He makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside quiet waters. God takes us to places of nourishment, green pastures. And remember, think about this. This is the Middle East that David is writing about. It's not like they had a lawn right out the front door. So David is writing about something that's kind of, of a paradox in a sense. I mean, if you think about it, this is the Middle East. There's not really supposed to be green pastures, and yet David's saying... He takes me there, and He makes me lie down in them, and He leaves me beside quiet waters. He's not taking me out to an ocean where it's loud and noisy, but taking me to a place that's calm, a place where I feel at peace, a place where I feel like I can rest. Well, why is that important? Here's why. Because it says, you prepare a table before me. Now, this is not talking about time. This isn't saying Jesus prepares the table at 9 o'clock and I show up at 9.30. Like I stay at the house, Jesus prepares the table, and then I go from my house to the table. That's not what this means. It is literally as if Jesus Christ has taken the grocery store and has the table right here and says, Come here. Sit. And he watches you sit down, and he says, what would you like to eat? Well, now, I don't know about you guys, but if somebody tells me, what do I want to eat? I'm picking a porterhouse. I'm picking the juiciest, nicest marbling porterhouse I can find. And I'm picking some choice vegetables, and I'm going to pick some of my favorite cheese. I love pepper jack. 
So I'm going to ask for some pepper jack. And it's as if Jesus says, wait a second. And he finds that cow and he slaughters it. And he gets that fresh porterhouse and he puts it onto the grill that he made. And he says, wait a second. And he comes over here and he gets together a cheese tray for me. And he gets a, a vegetable tray for me. And that vegetable tray does not have cauliflower on it. it does have broccoli though. <laughs> and, he, and he takes some strawberries and some honeydew melon and some cantaloupe. Are y'all getting hungry yet? I'm getting hungry. Maybe I shouldn't be preaching this sermon right now. <laughs> and he puts it on the table before me and he says, eat that while I, while I keep taking care of you. And so I start chowing down on the cheese and the fruits. And I've got my favorite glass of lemonade and sweet tea. It's called an Arnold Palmer. I didn't want to say the words before I explained it because I don't want people to think I like drinking Something that's alcoholic. I don't like drinking alcohol. I'm a, I'm a sober alcoholic. So I'll drink an Arnold Palmer, which is sweet tea and lemonade. My favorite drink. And I'm chowing down on that, and the Lord gets over here, and He says, okay, porterhouse is good. He comes over here to the table, and He lays the porterhouse down. He says, I got something else for you. And without even asking me, He goes over here, and He opens up the, the fridge door, and He gets out my favorite pie in the world peanut butter with whipped cream glory hallelujah it takes the pie out walks it over to the table sets it down takes a slice out sets it down before me and he says enjoy that was prepared just for you now before you think i have absolutely lost my marbles in telling you that story here's why i know that that story is true because it says, you, Jesus, prepare. Prepare is an intent. It shows, shows on-purpose action. You don't accidentally prepare something. You know, the day that I got married, I prepared to get married by on-purpose putting on what I call my penguin suit, which was the tuxedo that I got married in. I intentionally put it on. I intentionally shaved that morning. I intentionally prepared myself for marriage. Well, Jesus intentionally prepares this table. But He doesn't just say, you prepare a table through the presence of my enemies. It says, before me. So He's intentionally saying, this is just for you. This nourishment that you like, because there, there may be other people that don't like porterhouses. Maybe they don't want a, you know, a pork chop, right? This is just for you. It shows intent, but it shows care. Because he's preparing a table. It's not like the Lord Jesus says, all right, John, now that you're sitting down, wait one second. And he comes over here and he gets out white bread, which really isn't all that good for you. Gets out white bread and just kind of haphazardly slaps some mayo on it and slaps some mustard on it. Nothing against mayo or mustard. I love mayonnaise and mustard. And he puts it on a bologna sandwich. And he puts it together, slices it in two triangles, puts it on a paper plate, brings it over to me and says, here you go. The king of kings would not do that. The king of kings is extravagant. And we know he's extravagant because he gave us his son. His love was extravagant because he gave the best that he had to offer. So we know that not only is, is, his, prepare, is, is his preparation intentional, but he also cares, cares about us. Because he's giving us the entire table to feast on. It shows us how much he loves us because it's just for us. 
I get the mental image of this table literally being kind of a round table that's just big enough for me to be able to reach across, but nobody else is sitting down at that table. It's just for me. No one else is good enough to take care of God's sheep but the Lord Himself. Only Jesus can do it. Think about the times where the Lord provided extravagantly for everybody. If you look in the, in the Old Testament, Israel has left Egypt. They, they've gone across the Red Sea. They're walking through the Promised Land and they start to get hungry. And the Lord's like, okay, I'll give you something. And He gives them manna. And that manna is just for that day. And it's all the nutrition that they need. Think about the New Testament. For those of you who are like, okay, John, when did he do this in the New Testament? That's Old Testament. Old Testament's great. Yay for that. I love the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, think about him making a feast for 5,000 people and 4,000 people. Two separate events in the New Testament. A feast out of what, what amounted to two perches, because it says fish. And the word there in the Greek is little fish. Right, So think about like the smallest bram you can picture in your brain and some loaves of bread. And he makes enough for 15,000 because you take 5,000 men plus women and children. 15,000 people. He makes enough for 15,000 people to eat. And in both cases it says they ate until they were satisfied. It wasn't like they ate rich crackers and went, man, Lord, I'm still hungry. They were satisfied. They were content. That's what God brings to the table. God doesn't just give us rich crackers. He says, here is my feast. I am extravagant in what I provide to you. Enjoy. He gives us the best, and he has given us the best. And, and what's amazing is not only is he the shepherd, but we also know that because he's referencing Jesus, that this is the king of kings. Because this says, the Lord, the king is my shepherd. The king of kings, the one who made the universe as we talked about last week. The king of the universe is my shepherd. He loves me. He takes care of me. He nurtures me. He wants to make sure I'm okay. The king of the universe does that for little old me. Amen? Amen. But then we also see that he's our protector. First part of that verse says, you prepare a table before me. So we see that he is our, our, our preparer and our provider. In Hebrew, my God provides is Jehovah Jireh. You may have heard that before. The Lord provides. But then it also says, in the presence of my enemies. Now, I want to ask you guys a question. And it's a rhetorical question. So answer in your mind if you know the answer. But who is our chief enemy? Who is the one that hates us the most? It's not human beings. I have plenty of people on this planet that hate me. I can think of three or four names off the top of my head. But they're not really my enemy. Satan and his demons are my enemy. In fact, they are the chief enemy. In fact, we know that because Romans says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers of the darkness. Our chief enemy is Satan. And it's as if I'm sitting down 
And Satan is standing right next to the table. But notice it says, in the presence of my enemy. It doesn't say Satan's sitting at my table. It's as if I'm sitting there and Jesus is over here and I'm, I'm standing right, I'm sitting right here and Satan is just sitting there, just looking at me. Now, <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but if, if I'm sitting at a dinner table, regardless of who's preparing the meal for me, and my enemy is sitting right there waiting on, just looking at me, I'm going to get a little bit squirmy. I'm going to be like, I really want to eat this, but I'm getting acid reflux just looking at you. But really, should we? Because bear in mind, remember who's preparing the table. Jesus. Is anything more mighty and awe-inspiring and majestic than Jesus Christ? No. Is anything more powerful than Jesus Christ? No. And that's why it's in the presence of my enemies. Satan is not being allowed, not being allowed to sit down at my table. He can stand there, but only with God's permission. The enemy hasn't been given permission to stand at my table. He's just watching. If you'll remember from the book of Job, the beginning of the book of Job, all of the angels have been rallied into heaven and they're all kind of having a, uh, a count-off, as it were. And Satan comes to heaven. In case you think I've lost my marbles, go read Job chapter 1. I promise you, it's there. And Satan and God start having a conversation. And God's like, where you been? Satan's like, oh, I've just been hanging out on the earth, walking around to and fro, just doing what I do. And God's like, well, have you, have you considered Job? Have you looked at him? And Satan's response is, well, now, God, you know I can't touch him because he has your favor. I mean, all the blessings that he has in his life are from you. He's rich. He's got all these kids and he's got cattle and sheep galore. So we know he has your favor. And we know that the reason why he's not going to curse you is because he's your boy. And you know I can't touch him. And God's like, I'll remove that hedge of protection from him. And if you go through the story, Job never once curses God's name in spite of the fact that Satan is allowed to even mess with his life can't kill him but he can mess with him see the reason why these things happen is because Jesus protects us and I know this is a mind-blowing thought but nothing happens on this planet in the spiritual realm without God letting it happen God keeps Satan on a leash which will really mess with you if you start to think about it. We're not going to do that today. Now, why is that a big deal? Why is it a big deal that Jesus, the shepherd, has Satan standing there but not sitting there? Why, how do we know that he's protecting us? Well, think about this. 
And I'm going to quote 1 Samuel chapter 17 here. This is the story of David and Goliath, which is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I love the story because it's not just about what physically is happening. There's a whole lot of spiritual stuff going on in the story. But David is talking to King Saul, who's the current king, obviously. So you have the future king of Israel talking to the current king of Israel. You have a teenager talking to a king. You have... A 15-year-old talking to a guy that's six foot two and has armor and rules the king of Israel. And Saul's trying to tell David, you don't want to do this, man. It's just a really, really bad idea to go take him on. He's nine foot two, and you're not. This is David's response. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took the lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him. And rescued it from his mouth. Think about a teenager running after a lamb and attacking a lion or a bear and rescuing it from his mouth. That kid's got some cuts, but. And then it says, I seized him by his beard. David has some close quarter combat going on, as they would say, some CQB. He, he grabs the lion by the mane and he punches that lion. Woo! No knife. Hand to hand combat, fist fight. I punched him, I struck him, and I killed him. There was no knife. There was no spear. David went after this lion and was like, you're not getting that sheep. Grabbed that lion by the beard after he'd rescued the sheep. Grabs that lion by the beard, smashes it in the face, and kills the lion barehanded. This is a teenager. That's crazy. And then he says this. The uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, will be like the lion and the bear, because he has taunted the armies of the living God. See, Jesus isn't afraid of Satan, and we shouldn't be afraid of Satan for one very, very important reason. Jesus defeated Satan on the cross. And if we are Christians, and we have been bought by Jesus Christ's blood, then Satan is nothing but a little old house cat. If you go over to one of Peter's letters, it says he prowls around like a roaring lion. He's not a roaring lion, but he sure tries to sound like one. Behind closed doors, he may be roaring like a lion, but when you open that door up, he's just a little old kitty cat going, meow. Should we be afraid of Satan? Should we respect Satan? We should, be, we should be aware of Satan, but we should not fear Satan. In fact, we should do the opposite. We should remember Satan I've got victory over you. Jesus protects us, not only from Satan, but from our enemies. But we have to remember something, guys. Just because Satan is standing by our table doesn't mean he can't mess with us. He might be, we might be protected from God, or protected from him in the presence of God, but that doesn't prevent Satan for messing with us. The Bible tells us he's the accuser of the brethren. And it's as if Satan, not just at our dinner table, but all the time, is down the next just going, hey, you remember back February 15th where you said you gave your life to Christ? You remember that? You know that was really just a show, right? Yeah, this... this This ministry that you claim that you have, it's just a game. Remember that. He whispers in our ears. 
And he tries to make us believe those things. And that's why it's so important that we remember the next phrase. That not only is God our provider and our preparer, not only does he protect us, but he is our healer. Jesus Christ, our shepherd, is our healer. Now, if you'll, if you'll allow me to continue with the imagery, we've ended the feast. We've, we're fat and happy now on porterhouse, veggies, the best cheeses, a peanut butter pie, and we've drank way too much sweet tea and lemonade. We're just bursting at the seams. Got to loosen that belt up a little bit. And Jesus cleans up the table, takes it over here, puts all the stuff in the sink. He comes over and he grabs a bottle of olive oil. He comes over behind us and he unscrews the bottle of olive oil. He says, my child, tilt your head forward. And we put our head forward just like that. And he starts to pour that bottle and the, the oil goes and it starts to flow over the top of our crown and it flows down the back of our neck and onto our shoulders and runs down the back of our back. And it runs forward down our head and over our forehead and around our eyes and our nose and our cheek and just covers us. Well, it says, you have anointed my head with oil. Jesus anoints us, but he doesn't just take the Bible, the, the, the bottle and go, bloop. No, Jesus gives abundantly. John 10.10. He gives us abundant life. He doesn't just give us a halfway life. So he takes that bottle and he pours. And he keeps pouring. And he keeps pouring. And he keeps pouring. And eventually, he tilts the bottle on its head. And he just empties out all over us. He gives us everything he has. And by the time we're done, all of us is dripping with holy oil. Why is that important? Why is that a big deal? Well, remember that this is written in the Middle East. This is written by a man who had been anointed. If you'll remember back in 2 Samuel, Samuel's there and he walks up to Jesse and he says, bring out all your sons. And Jesse brings out all of his sons but one, David. And Jesse kind of says, all right, line them up. And Samuel's like, nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. And they get done. And Samuel's like, Lord, what do I do? And the Lord's response is, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks, on the, God looks at the heart. See if there's anybody else. Samuel's like, all right. Hey, Jesse, you got, you got any other sons? Jesse's like, yeah, I got this kid out back named david but you don't want him he's a shepherd and he's a teenager you seriously like i got these other guys you sure you didn't miss one and the lord's like no bring him in and david walks in from the field and i can only imagine david's a teenager and he's sweating and he's probably sunburned because the bible says he's ruddy probably got some red hair because redheads are awesome might stink a little bit because he's been around a bunch of sheep. He walks in from the field and God tells Samuel, that's the one. And Samuel tells David, get down. 
and he anoints David. I just wonder if while David was writing this, he was remembering his own time of anointing. Anointing in the Middle East did two things. For sheep, it was how shepherds protected their sheep. Shepherds would actually take a bottle of oil and they would pour it right around the the bridge of their nose right there and then pour it on the sheep's head. And so what it would do is it would flow around the sheep's, I guess, muzzle and it would seal their skin and then they would pour it on the sheep's ears and head and it would seal the ears with oil and seal their wool with oil, preventing disease, preventing flies from getting in. Now this is kind of a gross image, but flies would lay eggs on the nose of the sheep and if the nose of that sheep didn't have oil on it, those eggs would grow in there and out pops a fly out of a sheep's nose. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that image in and of itself is enough to make me want to scratch my face. I can't imagine what it would do to a sheep. And so this shepherd says, I don't want that happening to my sheep. I don't want them getting diseases. I'm going to pour oil over them, give them a protective barrier. But it was also how they anointed future kings. Obviously, we see that with David. And ultimately speaking, when you were anointed by God, when Samuel was anointing King David, David was being recognized as one of God's sheep, but it was also telling everybody around David, you belong to God. God is going to empower you. God is going to provide for you. God is going to protect for you. You're His. You have His favor. Church, when, when we become Christians, we receive the anointing of God. If you'll remember back in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the, the church is given the power and the authority by the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ says, Go, my, my Holy Spirit's going to sit on you. Go into all of the world and preach. And do it boldly. You can't preach the gospel weekly. The gospel is too powerful to be, be, to be preached in any way other than boldly you can't walk up to somebody and say hey man let me tell you about god he changed my life do you think that that person's going to believe you hey man changed my life but i can guarantee you if you walk up to somebody and say i've got to tell you about the greatest news that you're ever going to hear that you've never heard from me about how god changed me they're gonna be like whoa whoa, whoa okay crank back the energy dial a little bit tell me what you got because you you're kind of scaring me right now. But you have their attention. You have a captive audience. And it's because you've been anointed and set apart by God. And as Christians, we have to remember that because so often we get out in the world and we're like, dear Lord, help me to have a great day. Amen. And we just go. When the reality is what we should do is say, Lord, thank you for giving me this day and blessing me. Help me to go out in your power and go out bold as lions in the name of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? I mean, practically speaking, how do you, bold as lions, take, I'm anointed and I'm, I'm healed by God, how do you do that out in, the, out in the real world? Well, that takes us to our last phrase. My cup overflows. Guys, I'm sure, and ladies, I'm sure that you all know this, but I'm going to state this anyway. We, as Americans, not just as American Christians, but as Americans, are incredibly blessed. 
We have a whole lot more than we ever need or deserve. I have way too many pairs of shoes in my closet. I have more than I need. We are blessed, but we're blessed spiritually. We're not, we're free to be in this church. There are places in China right now that are meeting underground because they're terrified of what the police will do to them. But more importantly, we have an abundance. Not just of physical things, although we have an abundance of physical things. Think about how many televisions you have in your house right now. Back in the 70s, on average, somebody probably had one. I'm willing to bet there are some folks that probably have one in every room of their house right now. Hopefully not in the bathtub. We have an abundance of things. But spiritually, we also have an abundance of things. Many of us have more than one copy of God's Word. And that's because God is an abundant God. But what's ironic is, here it's not talking about that in the sense of physical things. It's talking about spiritual things when it says, my cup overflows. And if you will, allow me to paint a picture. Um, hopefully, everybody in this room has heard of or knows about the bear Paddington. If you have children, I hear some folks behind me chuckling. Hopefully, you all have heard of the bear Paddington, the bear who popped his button. Well, there's, there's a couple of, of movies out with Paddington Bear, and I think it's in the first one where uh, the, the, this British family has found Paddington and they're taking him home and, and he's supposedly upstairs cleaning things. And well, he starts taking this toothbrush and he's like, I wonder what this is. I've never seen this. And this is a completely uneducated bear. I mean, hello, he's a, he's a bear. Been down in the rainforest. So he takes his toothbrush and he's like, well, I wonder what this is for. And he sticks it in his ear. And he's like, you know, he's like, whoa, that's bad. And he, and he was like, well, I wonder what it tastes like. So he takes it and he puts it in his mouth. And he's like, oh, that's right. Oh. And he goes over to the toilet. And he shoves his head in the toilet and he kind of washes his mouth out. And then he takes the toothbrush and he puts it into the toilet and he flushes the toilet and hopes that the toilet's going to suck the toothbrush down. Well, obviously, if you put a toothbrush into a toilet, it does not suck a toilet. It does not suck a toothbrush down. That toilet overflows. And so Paddington's like, oh, crud, what do I do? And so he starts cramming cloth in. And after a while, he's like, oh, man. And the next thing you know, this toilet has overflowed to the point where Paddington is in a bathtub floating in the bathroom because the toilet has overflowed so badly. And it gets to the point where this door, the door to the bathroom, bursts open and Paddington takes a free ride down the stairs to the foyer of their apartment. And this water just goes spewing everywhere. Now before you're like, Brother John, what does an abundant cup, what do an abundant cup and Paddington Bear in a toilet and a bathtub have to do with this sermon? You have lost your marbles again. No, I haven't, and here's why. Just as that tub overflowed because the water could not stop, because obviously he had flushed the toilet and water just kept going and going and going. It should be that way in our lives spiritually because we have an unending power source in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. When we get into God's Word, when we pray daily, I said daily, and even I'm guilty of, that, of not doing that. When we pray daily, 
when we read the Bible daily, when we worship, and that can be something as simple as just taking a favorite hymn that's in your head and singing it. When we do those things daily, what happens is the Holy Spirit essentially kind of turns on the faucet and fills us. Well, why is that important? Because this says my cup overflows. Why is overflow important? Because it's only out of the overflow that you change other people's lives. Think of, going back to the Paddington illustration for a second, the entire house was affected by a very small thing, a toothbrush. But everything was affected because of an overflow. Well, in our lives, if we overflow with the Holy Spirit, if we're continually going and going and going, it doesn't, ha- no, it doesn't matter how much we're putting out because we're continually drawing from the source. We never get dry because we're drawing from the source so we can output as much as we need to because we're inputting as much as we need to. And other people around us are affected by it. And our cup can overflow because it will never, ever stop. But the opposite can happen. If you stop reading God's Word, if you stop praying, if you stop worshiping Him, your cup is not going to overflow. It may get right to the top, but it'll stop. And what happens is when you start to minister to other people, and you're not doing it out of an overflow, but you're doing it out of your own power, that cup, when you pour yourself out to serve somebody or to witness, when you pour yourself out because there's nothing more going in, that cup gets emptied and it stays that way. But God doesn't want it to be like that. God wants it to overflow. And the reason why I know that is verse 6. It says, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the, all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God wants our cup to constantly overflow. But it can only do that if we allow Him to come into our lives. Who is at your table? Is the person sitting at your table the one who has prepared you and prepared what's before you? Is he your protector? Is he your healer? Is he the one that provides an abundance in your life? Or have you allowed an enemy to sit at your table? Have you allowed an enemy to sit down and not just whisper in your ear, But have you allowed an enemy to start eating off of what Jesus has prepared for you? Because he prepared it for you. He didn't prepare it for Satan. He didn't prepare it for anybody else. He prepared it for you. And the reason why he prepared it for you is very simple, guys. Because you belong to him. Go back to verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I claim Jesus as my shepherd. And the only way you can do that is if he really is your shepherd. If you've actually claimed and said, Jesus, I know that you died on the cross for my sins. Yes, you died for everybody else's sins, but you died for my sins too. 
and you were raised from the dead to give me eternal life, Lord. And I want you to be the boss of my life. And I'm not going to worry about what everybody else thinks. I want you to be the boss of my life forever. In a moment, we're going to a time of very brief invitation. And if you have never become a Christian and you would like to, when we pray, I'm going to lead us in a, in a prayer of salvation. And if you've never given your life to Christ, just repeat the words after me. But maybe you've given your life to Christ. Maybe you've been baptized and you want to join this church. You are welcome to come forward. I would love to talk to you. And at the time of our invitation, we'll close in a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. If you would, stand with me now as we go into that time of invitation. And if you've not been saved, I would encourage you simply to say something like this. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I confess you as Lord and call upon you to save me. In your name I pray, Jesus. Lord, as we go now into our time of invitation, Lord, even for those that are here, Lord, I ask that you would help us to do business with you and be real with you. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.